Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3. And we'll pick up in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the fruit of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And we ask that God will bless the reading of his words this morning. I was uh, encouraged yesterday as uh, I watched or kept up to date on the BBC that Aberdeen have managed yet again to make it through uh, to another round in the Scottish Cup, and even more encouraged uh, that Rangers didn't. And this, 
This is a, a somewhat dangerous position to hold as somebody whose father-in-law is a keen uh, Rangers fan, but it's always nice to have something to, uh, to say as an Aberdeen fan. It's rare that you get these opportunities to gloat, um, but uh, it's nice from time to time uh, to have that chance. When uh, football teams do badly, there is always a reason for it. When I was the chaplain at Cowden Beef, it was routinely uh, the manager's fault, although he never kicked a football uh, over the course of his time there. Or uh, it was the referee's fault. I feel sorry for football referees who routinely walk out onto the pitch knowing it doesn't matter who wins, they're going to be the single most hated man out there, uh, no matter the result in the end. They'll never get it right. The important thing to ask for football teams or for rugby teams or for any athlete is when things all go wrong, where did it go wrong? How did it go wrong? What happened? Because if we never ask those questions, no one learns, no one grows, no one develops, and so you go on committing the same mistakes over and over and over again. And the same question sits before each and every person on the planet when it comes to their lives and their relationship with God. If we don't ask, where did it all go wrong, we'll never find any answer to the problems that cause us difficulties. And Christians are people who think they know where it all went wrong. Sin entered the world and corrupted everything. Sin is any lack of conforming to God's law, doing anything that God doesn't want us to do, whether it's in speech or in thought or in deeds. And after we become Christians, although we believe that we've started to answer those questions, although we believe we have been saved from enslavement to sin and to death, we have to go on asking these questions because we want to grow as Christian men and women. We don't want to keep falling into the same pattern of behavior we had before that's destructive and damaging to me and the people around me and distances me from God. I know little of Him and uh, have uh, little to, to thank Him for and worship Him for. I have little reason to tell other people about Him because of the effects of sin if we don't ever bother to ask these difficult questions. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I go to that place? And so on. And so this morning, to address that issue, we'll uh, look at two broad questions, two broad issues. Uh, why is sin such a big deal uh, that it causes so much bother? And after you become a Christian, why is sin still a problem? And we'll, we'll break these down a little bit as we go. But why is sin such a big problem? You may remember uh, the writing of uh, a book by Steve Chalk. Steve Chalk was a Christian teacher, a very well-known Christian teacher. In the early 2000s, he wrote a book which suggested that he had departed from the, the historic Christian view of uh, man and God and man's relationship with God and sin. He uh, said that sin really wasn't a big deal at all, that God could simply just overlook sin. He could just remove it. He could simply take it away without really any fuss, without ever needing to send Jesus to die. The thought that Jesus had to die to pay some penalty for sin was an abhorrent idea, and the words that he used were that it was cosmic child abuse on God's part to do something like that, and Christians uh, shouldn't believe that. God is bigger than that. God can just forgive. It's unjust that Jesus would die for the sins of other people. And it 
basically boiled down to this question, why is sin such a big deal after all? If God is infinite, then surely He can just forgive people. Well, Satan had promised Eve when he appears in the garden, the serpent comes, and the serpent is pictured by Moses as a a representative, as it were, for Satan, for all that is ranged against God and his desires. And we find that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and he comes and tempts Eve by telling her certain things. Now, there's a play on words going on between chapter 2 and chapter 3 that we don't see uh, in English, between the innocence of uh, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden because they were naked and they, they, didn't, they didn't really know it. They didn't understand that there was any issue with that. They had no shame in that regard because that was the way that God had made them. And the, the craftiness of the serpent. The serpent comes in and plays on their innocence and so leads them astray. And the serpent says to Eve, you don't need to worry about what God has said to you, about the fact that he said, don't eat from the tree, this tree in the garden, eat from all the others, because if you do, you will surely die. You don't need to worry about that. And the serpent made a number of uh, promises to Eve if she went against God and actually ate from the tree. So the lie that the serpent told was, number one, that you'll have power over your life. God said, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. You're not going to die. That's not an issue. You can eat from this tree with complete freedom, with total impunity. Nothing will happen. You will have control over your life. Lie number one. Lie number two was that you'll see things as they ought to be. Your eyes will be opened. You will recognize good and evil. And as we mentioned last week, it's not really recognizing the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, because it didn't ex- evil didn't exist in the world at the time. God had made the whole world very good. What the serpent is saying is you will have... Uh, you will have that ability to discern, to make a decision, to make the call, that is right and that is wrong. And the implication of that is that Eve would look on something that God has made and decide it's not very good. That she would cast judgment upon God's creation. She will see things clearly. Her eyes uh, will be open. Thirdly, the third lie is that she will be in control of her own life. You will be like God. God is the one who's made everything, and God is telling you, you can't go here and eat this particular food. But that's not on, is it? If you eat from the tree, you'll be the one in control. You can decide whether you eat from this tree or that tree, or you go here or there or whatever it might be. You will be in total control. You'll be like God. He gets to decide these things, and so will you. And fourthly, you will decide between right and wrong. You will call a thing good, and it will be good. You will call a thing evil, and it will be evil, because that is the power that resides with God. And if you eat from this tree, then you will be like him. He's suggesting, essentially, that the tree, the fruit from the tree, is the source of God's godness. And Eve can take that upon herself if she uh, eats from that tree. Now, the problem is that they do eat the fruit, that Eve eats the fruit, and then she offers it to Adam, and Adam, who should have known better because God specifically told him he shouldn't eat from the tree, goes and eats it anyway. And I can understand that, that, um, that the person that God has made for you in this life to be your, your partner, your, um, your, your, um, the one that sort of 
um, sort of meshes together with you, that, that, that fits together, that completes you, is saying, eat this thing. Of course, you're going to listen to what that person has to say. But when they eat it, they find the very opposite of Satan's promises actually are worked out, as is so often the case. It's like eating biscuits before you go for your lunch after the service today. You know you oughtn't to eat four or five or six of them, but they're so tasty, and you just can't stop. Maybe you can. Maybe you have iron-hard self-control. But I'm sure there's other areas of your life that when you've opened a box of chocolates, you discover that you're onto the second tray already, and you don't know what happened to the first tray or whatever it might be. We find that, that we've taken on something that we thought would, would give us so much, but after it's done, we realize it's kind of empty. And actually, it's made us feel a little bit ill, and it hasn't been all that good for us at all. And we find with Adam and Eve, the truth is that they live in constant fear. They are not all-powerful over their lives. They're terrified. They know immediately they've done something wrong, and they haven't become like God, and all of a sudden, here God comes. What on earth is He going to say? What on earth will He do? They're made aware of how small they are as humans and how great God is as God, and they realize that they are absolutely terrified. Their sin makes them aware of that, and it makes them aware that they are now distant from God. The truth is that they're going to go on um, living in sin. Once they've started they can't stop. The problem is they're naked. So, what do they do now? Well, they sew fig leaves together. They try and cover up their nakedness. They're now trying to conceal the fact that they've sinned in the first place. Instead of coming to God and asking for His forgiveness and just laying it all in front of Him and saying, we're so sorry, they cover it up. And what does God then have to do? God then has to come and cover their nakedness. And how does He do that? He slaughters an animal. He kills an animal and skins it, and He makes uh, clothes for them from the skin of that animal. And as we'll see as we go through Genesis, this is one of many pictures of what Jesus is to come and do. Ultimately, as you move through Genesis and into Exodus, we find that animal is specifically, it becomes a lamb. A lamb dies to cover that the sin, the shame, the nakedness, as it were, of Israel and Egypt. And then when Jesus comes, he is the lamb that is slain uh, for our nakedness, our sinfulness, the things that we do wrong which offend God. But Adam and Eve try and cover it all up. One sin leads to another, leads to another, and there's no end to the sin. And when God says, what have you done? What do they then do? They go a step further. Not only have they disobeyed God, not only have they tried to cover up their sin, they then start blaming God. Adam, what have you done? It's the woman you gave me. If you hadn't given me such a shoddy partner, it would have been fine. And then when he turns to Eve, Eve says, well, it was the serpent. It was the animal that you made and you put in the garden. It's not my fault. They blame God. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And when their children are born, we find that murder happens very quickly and it just slides away as sin begets sin begets sin. The third truth that is revealed to them is that they'll live hiding from the only hope of salvation. Shame drives us to, to move inward. 
to try and move away from somebody else who might look upon the things that we have done. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. This idea of shame is something that we've lost in our culture today. And I'm sure, I mean, I can remember when I was growing up, and I'm sure those of you who are older than I am can certainly remember when shame and honor were far more a part of our culture. They don't exist really today. But the idea that you would do something because it's right, it's costly for you to do this thing, but it is the right thing to do because it's an honorable thing to do. You uphold the elderly or the weak or or the poor or whatever it is because it is the right thing to do to honor that person simply for who they are. And it's a shame for you to... um, to, to, you know, to, to go against these sort of cultural things. I was watching a short uh, video clip the other day of, uh, it was a cemetery down in England, and there was about 10 to 20,000 pounds worth of damage had been done by people going in and just tipping over gravestones. Now, there is no money to be made. There is nothing to be made in tipping over gravestones. It's just a, a, an act of sheer vandalism for the sake of it. And the person commenting on it was saying that this is a terrible shame on those people. They're just young people, they presume, um, with nothing better to do but just break things around them and, uh, and it's caused all this damage. It was a shame on them and um, therefore on uh, their community. But it's something that's, that's departed from our culture these days. But, but we do live hiding from God, don't we? We commit the same sins over and over again. And instead of running to God for forgiveness, to say, look, lay it all bare and say, I've failed yet again, we sort of try and cover it up. Or we bargain with God that if you will help me with this issue, then I will go and do that. If you take away the consequences for what I've done wrong so I don't have to face up to them, then I will be this extra special good person. Or whatever it might be, we hide our sin in an ongoing way. This is why sin is such a big problem in the world. But why is sin still a big problem for Christians? Well, part of the reason is that issue of shame. Our relationship with God has been changed. When somebody lives a a sinful life, as all human beings do, we're born in sin, Scripture says. In fact, because Adam and Eve, our first parents, were sinners, every one of us who've been born from that family are infected with the same problem, and it changes the nature of the relationship we have with God. We, we actually, it's like we believe Satan's lie that we can be like God, and we see him as a competitor. We see him as a threat to us instead of the great, gracious Savior and one who blesses us that he actually is, and so we flee from him rather than to him. That's particularly true of Christians. And the relationship we have with one another is changed. It's what I talked about a couple of weeks ago in uh, one of C.S. Lewis's books when we have, um, we have this idea of, of looking around the church and we see all these people that we worship with week by week and we ought to love them as God loves them. But what we actually do is we see all the flaws and the things that frustrate us and they've got squeaky boots and they say that really annoying thing. Every time they pray, they use that phrase and it just really gets my goat. And you know, whatever it might be, we focus on the negatives on the downsides, the relationship with one another had been sort of broken apart because sin ultimately focuses us on me and not on you. Me always, me above God, me above anyone else. And that is why sin is still a big problem for us. And it's why we must talk about sin as Christian men and women. The world doesn't want to talk about it, but we must because it is a big problem 
and it can't be dealt with by simply ignoring it. It only makes it worse. So, what can we do? Into the situation in Genesis 3, God speaks. We've heard what the man and woman have had to say. It's been heartbreaking given how much God has done for them, how quickly they turn against one another and they turn against God. But God speaks, and even at this early stage, He provides a way out for mankind. And this is the most astonishing thing of all, that we have the gospel message, the good news that Jesus comes to bring, to live and to die and be risen up from death uh, to to bring. We hear all in Genesis chapter 3, and we understand that before Adam and Eve have sinned, God already has a rescue plan in place. None of this has caught God by surprise. He is not unaware. He's not panicking, thinking, what do I do? My creation is slipping away from me, and I've got to try and make something good out of this. God knows already and is in complete control. And the solution to the problem is a gift. God is going to send mankind a Savior that will undo all of the damage that they have caused. And we find that our enemy has been dealt with by this powerful Savior. When God hears from Adam and Eve as to why they've turned against Him, He responds by speaking first to the serpent. And He addresses the serpent and he punishes the serpent for what he's done in leading mankind astray, for tempting them. Now, we have to remember that temptation has been there, but Adam and Eve didn't have to give in to that. The temptation was evil on the part of the serpent, and yet Adam and Eve didn't have to respond like for like, and yet they did. So, everyone will be addressed in this. But the serpent is punished, and he's told that one day a descendant of the woman will come who will crush the serpent's head, will kill him, destroy him for all that he will bruise that descendant's heel. He will in some small and insignificant way damage the seed of the woman, a descendant of this woman, Eve. But in doing so, his head will be crushed. He will be dealt a a deadly blow. And we notice at the start of verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and hers. They will be enemies. And this is the first thing that we have to recognize in God's gift to mankind, is that we do have an enemy. The devil works constantly against God. And if we are living in accordance with God, in in accordance with His ways, He will work against us constantly to frustrate God and to uh, frustrate us. And yet, despite the fact we have this enemy that we can't see or can't touch, who sort of whispers constantly in our ear, we hear that mankind's most hated and dangerous enemy is already dealt with. It's already been sorted right back in Genesis 3. There is no need to fear this enemy because God has already won a victory over him, because God himself is fighting for the salvation of a people. And this gift of a powerful Savior does three things very quickly. First, it means that when Scripture says if we believe in Jesus and repent of our sins, turn from our sins, that is follow in the way that Jesus calls us to follow, it means we can be forgiven no matter what we have done. Now, we may still have to live up with the consequences of what we've done, but we can be forgiven. And as Christian men and women, that's a great relief to us, isn't it? That we can have all of the sinful things in our lives dealt with. And we can have more sinful things than we ever realized were there, exposed, and then dragged out and and dealt with by God. But it also means that when we look at one another, we can see people whose sins 
have been dealt with. And although we might struggle to lay aside the memory of those things, if God has forgiven them, then we must also do so. But Jesus really suffers. He is really a man that comes and dies for our sake. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're free. We constantly battle to keep ourselves alive, to keep ourselves focused on the things society says are important, and God says, in Jesus, you are free from all of that because of what he's done because he became a man and did it for us. Secondly, picking up on uh, in that Hebrews 2 passage, the gift of a powerful Savior means that, that as we continue to go through temptations and struggles, we've got one who's able to understand. Jesus actually became a man, actually knows, actually appreciates what has gone on here when we're tempted, and yet Jesus remains sinless. He knows how to lead us in that way. He knew when to say no. And so he leads and guides us in that same way, forgiving us, but constantly leading and guiding us in that way. So as we read God's Word and as we trust in God's Spirit, he will lead us in that way. That's what your conscience is for. Thirdly, tying these two things together, this gift of a powerful Savior who defeats our enemies helps us understand how we reach our world. Jesus became like us, entered our world, our the sphere of our existence, where we live, and talked about all of these things, sin and salvation, death and life, heaven and hell. And although we should do so sensitively when we reach others with the gospel, that's what we do. We get alongside people, and we share the good news with them that must begin with the bad news, but ends with the good that Christ is their perfect Savior. But we can only do that from a position where we're alongside them. Our enemy is dealt with, and it changes everything. For some reason, the slide doesn't want to move on. Anyway, our fears are replaced with joy. We don't stop just with an enemy that's defeated. We, we have this um, fear that, that we are constantly enslaved to sin and death, and yet in Jesus we find that that uh, fear is dealt with, because if God has been willing to give us such a perfect Savior, He won't stop working with us, blessing us, building us up, uh, and leading us in the right way. And that's cause for huge excitement, isn't it? That The knowledge that your enemy who gives you so much trouble is already dead and defeated, and God is expending His energy on leading you in the right way, constantly forgiving you and building you up and blessing you. So the fear that you might fail, that you might turn back to sin, that you might not be acceptable to God, actually is pointless. Satan's power is broken because of the gift of Christ who has died and risen again. It is done. It is finished. His head has been crushed. And that helps us in a couple of different ways. It helps us to know that we belong to God, and the only one who can remove us from God's presence is God Himself, and He promises never to do that. And secondly, it means that we're able to bring hope to people where we live, because people are so bound to sin that they simply cannot let it go. They're enslaved. I don't know how many times I've spoken to people who don't feel worthy of coming to church, don't feel it's the right place for them because they're not that kind of person. 
And we're able to speak to that and say that that is actually not true. We have a community fridge where people come, 80-something people over the last um, couple of times it's averaged out at, I think. And we have a great opportunity to say that they can be free from fear. You're terrified of the circumstances of your life, but you can be totally free because we have a Savior who is mightier than all of these things. It's not that you're so unworthy, therefore you can't come. You must come because you're unworthy. You must. And so we don't hope that one day we will see uh, sin and death defeated. We live with confidence that it's already defeated in what Jesus has done. Still not moving on. But we also find having a, a Savior uh, that comes, a perfect Savior, our shame is covered over. And this is perhaps the greatest thing of all. When Adam and Eve first sin, God comes looking for them in the garden, and they try and clothe themselves. They're ashamed. They're naked. And the implication is not that they, they're not wearing any clothes, that the idea is that they, they are aware of their sinfulness. It makes them feel dirty. It makes them feel that they shouldn't be in God's presence anymore. They, they, they are now distant from Him, and we find that that shame is addressed through the death of an innocent creature. So when Christ finally does come and die and rises for our sins, we find that, um, that in the end, our shame for our sin, our nakedness, is covered over. We will certainly go on to commit sin in the future, and yet His death covers those sins also. Not that we can just go, well, I can go and do whatever I want because I've got a, a free ticket to heaven now. That's not how it works. That suggests we don't understand the relationship we have with God, and we're not truly trusting in God uh, for our salvation. But those sins have been blotted out completely in the language of Scripture so that God remembers them no more. You will feel terrible for the things that you have done or haven't done or whatever it might be, but in the end, God blots them out so you're free to live with Him and enjoy His presence. And the coming of Jesus means that Satan can't accuse us of those things anymore. He has no ability on that last day when we stand before God and, and we sort of present ourselves to God to see whether we're acceptable. Satan cannot come and say, no, 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 you can't have him or her because they did X, Y, and Z. God is able to say all of those things are done and paid for. They are no more. We have no need to fear. There is no place for the Christian to say, I hope I'm acceptable to God. We are acceptable to God, not because of your greatness, but because of the greatness of Jesus. So our shame is done away with. In the end, on the last section of the passage, we find that Jesus is the only way. We're going to come around the table in a minute or two just in celebration of that. We find that their way into the Garden of Eden, the place where life is, is permanently blocked. The cherubim are angels, these sort of mighty ones who act on behalf of God, and a flaming sword turns every which way to stop Adam and Eve getting back into the garden, because obviously they've been cast out into this world where they're going to have to slave hard simply to survive, and they had everything at their disposal in the garden. You would want to go back, but they can't. There is no physical way for them to do so within their own power, and yet we find in Jesus one who is able to make a path back through. And that's the picture that we have in Revelation at the end, where you have this city, and at the center of the city there are these trees there, and the picture is supposed to be, it's Eden, but better. 
It's not just a garden, it's a whole city, and God dwells everywhere with all of His people, and Jesus is the one who has made that way possible into that place, and Jesus alone. Because if there was a way back to the tree of life, Adam and Eve would have taken it. But they couldn't do so. We find it is only through Jesus, our Savior, that this is possible. We have a great promise this morning to deal with our fear of sin and death that keeps us shackled, chained, enclosed, focused in only on me. It's a promised Savior who comes to crush our enemy, to deliver us victory that we didn't deserve so that we might receive a promise, a blessing that goes way beyond anything we could ever have dreamt of. Our sins dealt with, our shame covered, and all through the grace of God. So let's pray together. Not only that we would know this, but that we would share this with the people around in Livingston. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have blessed us beyond measure in Jesus. There has been no way for us to deal with the problem of sin. This niggling problem that constantly has us damaging ourselves, hurting one another, destroying our world, undoing all the good things that you have given us. Lord God, we thank you that you have addressed it. You have made a way. Lord, our sin, our shame over all the things that we have done wrong. Lord, that part of us that says we can't come into your presence, we can't know you. Lord, that bit of us that causes us to turn on one another. Lord, all of it is addressed through Jesus' death on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you that in Genesis chapter 3, right back at the beginning, it was addressed. This is not some half-cooked emergency plan that you have conjured up. Lord, this has been a plan from the beginning. You understood, you knew, and you have provided for us before we were even born. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We ask you this morning to make us aware of our sin, Lord, especially if uh, we have not trusted in Christ for uh, our salvation. Lord God, we pray that you would make us aware of that sinfulness, that great need we have of you. And Lord God, we pray that you would have us cast ourselves upon Christ. If not for the first time, if for the umpteenth time, then we pray, Lord, have us come to Christ to receive, Lord, blessing and forgiveness for the sins of this past week. Lord, that there would be nothing that hampers our growth, our life, our love with you. Lord God, we ask all of this in Jesus' worthy, powerful, and wonderful name. Amen.